Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. As we welcome you along to the programme and Met Aaron are predicting that we will have one final warm spell this summer and they're saying temperatures will hit into the low 20s this week and they're also saying that there will be sunny spells nationwide. While today, listening to the weather forecast, I just brought you a couple of seconds ago, the weather today is going to remain a bit changeable because there is sunshine and showers, but things are going to pick up tomorrow. Tomorrow's going going to be a mainly dry, uh, sunny day. And then as we go into Thursday and Friday, temperatures should start to uh, rise as well. And they could hit into the low 20s Thursday and uh, Friday. So fingers crossed that we might get a nice weekend out of it as well. But certainly this is kind of the last throw of the dice. And <laughs> children are just about to go back to school. So don't you know that the sun will shine? They're not predicting anything like the heat wave that we had the week before last when it was well up in the 30s. And actually that recent heat wave that we had, I went away for a lovely long weekend uh, and, and spent it in beautiful Cork. So with great interest, I was following the story out of Cork Sherry yesterday. It could only be dis- described as an explosion of activity, pardon the pun, in at West Cork to First World War. British edition projectiles, which have been dormant, uh, obviously, for over 100 years, were uncovered in Cork McSherry Bay. The devices, uh, which thousands of boats would have passed over over the last 100 years, were uncovered just before lunchtime yesterday when an unsuspecting machine operator spotted one of these uh, devices which had been disturbed from the seafloor. And, of course, there's dredging works we know going on in Cork McSherry at the moment that the main stretch of road through the village obviously had to be closed off to traffic for a time yesterday and the two shells and I saw photographs of them they they were shaped like they looked like large bullets they were 75 76 centimeters by 45 centimeters in diameter initially when they were discovered they thought that perhaps they dated back to the second world war but then the army bomb disposal team had to be uh, brought in and they actually found when they started to look at them that they weren't from the Second World War, they were actually much older and that they were actually from the First World War. Now the Defence Forces removed them 
and then they had controlled explosions uh, were carried out but they were found after the controlled cons- um, explosions to be free from uh, any explosive materials and Noel Baker is writing in the Examiner about it this morning and he spoke with the Court McSherry RNLI live photo station press officer Vincent O'Donovan Vincent described them as looking like little torpedoes while RNLI colleague Mark Gannon uh, said that he when he looked at them that what they looked like were like bombs you would see in World War Two falling out of a plane that that's that's kind of what what they looked like now archaeologist Juliana O'Donoghue she's working on the project for Cork County Council she said the uh, shells appeared to be too heavy to have floated are being carried by the water uh, so the likely thing now they reckon that they had fallen off a vessel into the pier area but it would have been over a hundred years ago so there seemed like there was a great flurry of excitement in Corpon Sherry but thankfully everything was okay and the controlled explosions showed that there wasn't actually live explosions uh, in them but it's it's incredible isn't it when, and that's the reason why on any sort of work like this there's always archaeologists uh, present just you never know what they're going to find when they start digging up and when they, they do dredging work like this but uh, you know and reminders of the past can always be uh, brought to light when any kind of digging gets underway 0818103103 we've had a couple of calls and texts in over the last I suppose few weeks from people asking about the price of home heating oil because people are starting to notice that the price in petrol and diesel is falling when you go in to fill up at your local petrol station. So, so the knock-on, obviously, must be that the price of home heating oil has started to come down. So people are wondering, is now a good time to buy? If you have your money away and saved and ready to buy the home heating oil, would now be a good time? Well, the cost of home heating oil has fallen back over the last uh, few weeks. But the, when you look dig down into the figures of how much it's costing, householders are still paying more than what we would have paid this time last year. Now, with winter on the way, uh, many people are already starting to take delivery of oil. But the average prices now, they're down €250 for a 1,000 litre fill of oil compared with the prices you would have paid in June. So that's quite a substantial uh, saving. The fall is around the order of 20%. However, the current cost is still almost double what 1.5 million householders that used the fuel were paying this time last year. Just to give you an example of the figures on this one, for those who say have not filled a tank since last year and the tank the tank is actually emptied. They're the householders that are really going to be in for a, a bit of a shock to fill up the tank and the average tank takes 1,000 litres. So if you were to do it today, it would cost you €1,248 Euro for the home heating uh, oil. Now this is from figures quoted from oilprices.ie, their website. But this time last year, that very same fill of oil would have cost €650. Euro. So from €650, Euro, gone up today, it would be 1248 But if you had purchased that same 1,000 litres back in June, it would have cost you 1,500. It would have been three times the amount you would have paid this time last year. Now, crude oil prices on the world markets 
have been falling falling and there's, there's kind of a couple of reasons for it. One of the main reasons that it's falling on the wor- world markets is to do with the fact that there's fears that the Chinese economy and the Chinese economy is a massive user of oil. They may be entering a bit of a slowdown and this has eased some of the pressure on the wholesale prices which have been obviously rising uh, strongly. Prices have obviously been volatile since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February. The chairman of the Consumer Association of Ireland, the wonderful Michael Kilcoyne, he's called for VAT charged on home heating oil to at least be reduced. There was a temporary reduction on VAT on electricity and gas products. Now that was introduced at the start of this year, but that particular um, measure does not include home heating oil and of course it also doesn't include solid fuels and most people remember in rural areas don't have access to piped gas so for most people living in rural areas they have to rely on home heating oil and our solid fuels Michael Kilcoyne of the Consumers Association says home heating oil is an essential commodity for people. He said people on fixed incomes, in particular he's citing the elderly, they are really going to face a choice this winter. Do they heat their home or do they put food in their belly? The VAT on home heating oil, he says, it should be uh, reduced and it should be removed entirely, he reckons, for people on fixed income. Now, the government says it's unable to do that because it needs to secure a deal with the EU which would allow it to reduce the VAT on home heating oil. But then leave home heating, leave VAT aside on home heating oil. There's an additional charge. That's the dreaded, it's the the tax that seems to annoy most people. And that's carbon tax. And remember, carbon tax on home heating oil increased in May and it went up by just under 20 euro on a 900 litres of kerosene. And of course, at the time that it went up in May, a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, this is a really great time to sneak in an increase in carbon tax because a lot of people weren't buying home heating oil in May. In May, But of course, the government in their defence say that they left it until May because they knew people wouldn't have been buying home heating oil at that time. But it does mean now, as we head into the winter months and with September, just around the corner, people thinking of buying home heating oil, there will be the additional carbon tax of, I say, just under €20. So that means people are paying €93 in carbon tax for 900 litres of oil. So it's nearly €100. The money raised through carbon tax, that's set aside, though, to address fuel poverty. And it's also used to finance measures to help communities to switch to uh, greener energy that a lot of people feel with everything that's going on at the moment, would they ever give householders a break and maybe temporarily suspend carbon tax, particularly if they can't, if they say they can't do anything on that because they need permission from the EU. Surely on the carbon tax, that's something they could make a decision. The government could make a decision on themselves. Now, Kevin McPartland is with Fuels for Ireland. And that's the group whose uh, members import the oil. They say there's been a rise in demand for home heating oil and they've started to notice that in recent weeks. He said demand will get even stronger as soon as the country experiences its first cold snap of the autumn. He says whenever there's a cold snap, there's always a rush then to fill the tanks and that's when you get a spike in demand. Now he said oil companies though are running at high stock levels so they, they reckon they will be able to deal with any spike. 
like that comes their way so there shouldn't be any, any shortage of home heating oil. It's just to decide when is the time to move, when is this the time to actually decide to buy. Certainly anyone who held off, anyone who bought in June certainly paid a lot more for their home heating oil than they would today. But we are still paying double what we would have paid this time last year. Just another example of the rising cost of living. I was talking about petrol prices and our petrol people have noticed when they're driving into the forecourse the petrol prices uh, have and continue to fall. But Joe and Kamalik was on to say uh, petrol in his area is, is he feels is still remaining stubbornly high. Uh, he said uh, petrol this morning for example is at uh, 1 euro and 94 uh, cent. And I certainly have seen petrol I d- haven't seen it go into the 170 mark. I've certainly seen it in the 180. I saw it at 181 at the weekend and I saw it at 184. I haven't. Has anybody spotted petrol where it's gone down to a 1 euro 70 odd cents, even if it's 79 cent? But Joan Kilmatic reckons it's remaining stubbornly high in his area. It does pay to shop around and be eagle-eyed whenever you're passing a petrol station. And for families that are struggling with the back-to-school costs, keep in mind charity shops when you need to buy a uniform. And thanks to Rose in at the Tarish Jock, wonderful charity shop in Dunmanway. Rose was on to us this morning to say that they have both new and second-hand school uniforms at Tarish Jock in Dunmanway. If, if anybody's in need and maybe wants to buy a second spare uh, jumper or if you haven't even looked at buying the back-to-school stuff uh, yet, if the, and they, she, she says that they have all of the uniforms for all of the schools in the Dunmanway area. And I take it that is replicated at charity shops right across the city and county and it is worth popping in. You could be extremely lucky to pick up a new or nearly new school uniform in exactly the right size that you are looking for. So thank you uh, to uh, Rose and good luck to everybody at Tara Stock in Dunmanway. 0818 103 103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text, you can WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. A petition supported by the Midwives Association of Ireland is calling on the HSE to stop restricting home births. And it gathered over 1,300 signatures in the first 24 hours, with the numbers joining the campaign continuing to rise. Now, this follows a HSE recommendation limiting home birth availability to women living within a 30-minute ambulance drive from a maternity hospital. Breathe Alliance lives in Ballysaggart in County Waterford and she had her first child at home and says that this decision by the HSE is ignorant to the needs of women. And uh, Breathe joins me. Good morning to you, Breathe. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, You're very welcome to the programme. Now, firstly, how far from a maternity hospital do you live? So we're actually about uh, 55 minutes um, from Cork Maternity Hospital and one hour and 20 from Washford Hospital. So if this rule was in place, you would not have been allowed to have had your home birth? Yeah, yeah, it's looking like that. Um, Unless I went down the private route and hired a private midwife, um, I would be ineligible through the HSE home birth scheme. That's right. Okay, take me back. You had your first son during lockdown. We're talking March of 2021. Now, what made you decide to go for a home birth? This was your first pregnancy. That's right, yeah. 
Um, so one of the implications for women giving birth during COVID was the fact that their partners um, are, and the parents of their children, the fathers, um, weren't able to join them for the birth or any of the antenatal appointments. Um, so that really got me thinking, oh, what other options do I have here? Um, and I then looked into it and saw that I actually was eligible um, to partake in the home birth scheme as it was at that time. Um, and that led me down the road of um, looking into it a little bit more and contact- contacting a midwife who was happy to take me on. Was it easy or hard to organise? Oh, it was very easy to organise. Um, you basically contact the midwife and uh, she she books you in and um, at that first appointment that you have with them they will look through all of your risk factors and just to make sure that you're you are eligible for the service and and I think it's really important for people to know that for this particular service the HSC community home birth scheme the criteria are really really stringent it is only open to the most low risk uh, women with very uncomplicated pregnancies and I was I fortunately I was one of those women and um, it remained that way for the duration of my pregnancy. And did your midwife then, did she conduct all the antenatal, cla- antenatal appointments or did you still oh. have to go to the hospital? So after the um, 12-week booking appointment with the hospital, I didn't have any other appointments at the hospital apart from um, my 20-week um, scan. And so between after that, the care was shared between my GP, which was in my local area, and with my midwife, Caroline. And um, all of my antenatal appointments were actually at home. So my pres- my husband was there and, and I didn't have to go anywhere, you know, when Caroline was coming to me. It really is an absolutely fantastic service. How so, fabulous. And I'm just yeah. thinking, you must have, over those months, you'd build up a great relationship. You'd almost become friends with Caroline, I imagine. Exactly, yeah, you would. And um, you get to know each other really well and have absolutely ample opportunities to talk about your hopes for the, the for the birth, your preferences, um, any fears or concerns that you might have. And those appointments, you know, obviously she can't stay with you all day, but all of my appointments were at least an hour long. Um, and so that is not the experience, I think, of the vast majority of women who would access um the care pathways through the hospital, the appointments would be with a different different midwife or a different doctor each time and they're often very time limited. And um, so the standard of care that you're getting through the home birth service and um, the HSE home birth service is really exceptionally high. And then the labour itself, uh, Breather, talk me through what, what, what happened there. Um, so I um, actually started, the first thing that I had that something was, was going to be happening was... Um, Actually, the evening before I went into labour, um, around 8 o'clock on a Friday evening, I had um, what's called a bloody show, but I didn't realise that at the time. And I contacted Caroline going, Caroline, I'm bleeding. And she said, There's, no, don't worry, this is one of the early signs. She actually didn't think anything would happen for a couple of days. But as it transpired, um, things really started to get going at around midnight. And um, I, you know, didn't wake my husband. I just continued to rest. Um, but in by about like at 5 a.m., I you know it was quite apparent to me that things were well and truly um, on the go. And we contacted Caroline, and she she was out within an hour of contacting her, um, and she stayed with me for the rest of the day. And we were joined by another midwife, and that is what happens under the HSC home birth scheme. There are two midwives pre- present um, for the birth, and I had my little boy at about 2:30 in the afternoon. Well done, and, well done, yeah. well done. <laughs> so you had two midwives dedicated right. completely to you. Yeah, and my husband. <laughs> So a three a three to one ratio it really was. Um, it I felt so safe. 
um, you know, everyone just kept telling me how great I was doing, that I was so calm. And it was all in the comfort of my own home. I just I just completely focused on the task at hand. And um, it was, you know, I felt very, very relaxed, I must say. And very much set at your pace then, because you're in your own environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why for me, um, because I didn't have to think about leaving my home at any point, making a journey to the hospital, trying to time that, um, my labour actually progressed fairly smoothly there wasn't at any point things didn't really slow down exceptionally um it, it really progressed along at a pace that I think um the midwives were very happy with and they felt at all times that it was there the, you know there wasn't any need for any concern whatsoever and they communicated that to me so um yeah I felt very reassured at all times and then baby Tyke was born as you say half past three half past two did Caroline or the other midwife did they stay with you then for a few hours yeah, so the the second midwife, um, who is like the support midwife, she she headed off a little bit earlier, but not not before I was all tucked up in bed with with Tig and uh, cup of tea and ah. and uh, Caroline actually stayed until about seven o'clock that evening, and um she was back to us again the next morning. So that's another aspect of of this of the HSC home birth scheme that is really great. You get um five at least five postnatal visits at home as well where the midwife will come and check on you and the baby and make sure that you're um doing okay. And one of the things that I really wanted for for myself um and for for Ty uh, was that I wanted to breastfeed him. And uh, when I was doing my research, the, the outcomes for the HSE home birth scheme in terms of breastfeeding rates are phenomenal. So 97% of women um, are breastfeeding their babies upon discharge from the service. And um, if you were to compare that to the hospital, about 37% of women are breastfeeding their babies. It's, sho- it's shockingly low. It's just, it's one of those things that really frustrates me how low our breastfeeding rates are. And I've mm-hmm. spoken with friends of mine and other young mothers that I've dealt with on this programme who wanted to breastfeed but just felt that they weren't supported and that's not in any way taking from the nurses and the midwives in the mm-hmm. hospital but they're so incredibly busy. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's another aspect of having a birth in a hospital that can affect the likelihood of you getting off to kind of a smooth start with breastfeeding. And that's the fact that, you know, I learned all of this when I was doing my research about whether or not to go ahead with with a home birth. And that's that when you engage in hospital care, you are much more likely as a woman to experience interventions during the birth. And those interventions can have an impact on um, your the hormonal process that gets breastfeeding started. That's interesting. Um, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, and on kind of like how, you know, and how your baby does immediately after the birth as well. So I think that when in the article piece in the um, Independent, I really mentioned kind of the need for women to be able to make informed decisions about their care. And I think that unfortunately, women, when they're in hospital and they're being offered interventions or interventions such as induction are being offered, they're not often told the the risk um, of accepting an induction. Um, for example, that's only one, you know, it, mm. that you might be offered. And, you know, so how can women make informed decisions about their care if they're not being given all of the information? And what you have described sounds, uh, Breather, like an almost idyllic birthing experience. Yeah, I really, you know, there's very little that I would want to have been different about it, to be honest. Um, and I know that, um, 
people say like, oh, birth never goes to plan. I, this was as close, I think, to <laughs> my ideal scenario playing out as it, as it possibly could have been. Um, it was really, yeah, it was wonderful. That's the, and I felt yeah, well done. And, empowered. And your husband, I imagine, felt very involved. Oh, he did. Yeah, he was. Um, he had, you know, we had a because when you are at home, you can like get a birth school if you want. So he, one of his big jobs was um, <laughs> to fill that up and blow it up. And he was very busy with that for a long time. And um, at one point during the labour, he, he just he just said, gosh, I'm I'm really tired. And, and <laughs> everyone found this quite hilarious. I said, you're tired. <laughs> <laughs> you know nothing. You know nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so you did you you did the birthing pool. Did you did you find that good? Oh, I was yeah. I felt so incredibly relaxed um, in the birthing pool, and um, I used it for kind of um, just comfort. Um, yeah. I didn't give birth in it. Um, I came out of it. Um, you know, I was in it for a couple of hours, and it was just um. Now it it doesn't like take away the intensity of what you're experiencing, but you just feel really, it just enables you to cope with it really well. And the water is lovely and warm and you can move around in it mm. in different positions. So that was, uh, that was actually a great item to have. I would recommend that even if a woman wants to go into hospital to ultimately have her baby, that she should kind of think about, um, you know, having a bath at home or even getting a birth pool to use in the early stages of her labour if you would like to. Okay, and this decision and this proposal by the HSE uh, breather, yet again, it's going to be people in rural areas uh, who yeah. are, whose lim- whose options are going to be limited. I and mean, I'm straight away, when I was reading about this, I was straight away thinking of people in West Cork. There's, there's mm. nobody in West Cork living within 30 minutes of, yeah. of any hospital, let alone a maternity hospital. Yeah, of course. And I think that one of the things that like is surprising about this recommendation is that it doesn't really seem to take uh, some evidence that we have about outcomes for women who intend to home birth and live greater than 30 minutes from a hospital. So when I was kind of looking at all the research and, and kind of like, you know, it was on my mind as well. We, we are an hour from a hospital. I found a piece of research from 2019 that showed that there are no adver- risks of adverse outcomes for, for babies that are um born more than 30 minutes from a hospital and um, when you kind of sign up to the home birth service as well they make it very clear to you that there is there is always a chance there's always a risk that you might have to be transferred into hospital but for the vast vast majority of women um, they are actually transferred into access pain relief so maybe to access medication or an, epi- or an epidural that they wouldn't be able to, to access at home there are very 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 few women um, if any who are transferred in requiring well they were up until that point requiring um, like a, what's called a category one C section, so a, a true emergency C section. Mm. Um, so I think that people mm. are a little bit stumped by this recommendation because it seems to be looking at, you know, it it doesn't seem to be totally informed by the um, evidence and the research that we have and the outcomes from the from the home birth service itself. And then something you said at the start struck me as well. If you want to go private, if you can afford to do this then you can you you will be able to if this recommendation comes comes in it's only for 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 public patients and that's really unfair that it will come yeah. down to who can afford it and who can't exactly that's that's a case of equity in healthcare and i think that we already have a two tier you know we have a two tier healthcare system in ireland where if you can afford to pay for something you can access care more quickly or you can access different types of care that is just not available to um people who are solely public patients um, and the other thing is that options in terms of maternity care in Ireland are already quite limited. You know, in, I lived in England um, for many years and um, 
birth centers are very common there and, and they are essentially midwife-led units. They're kind of like at an in-between point between giving birth at home and giving birth in hospitals um, and they offer midwife-led care. But there's actually only two of those in all of Ireland and there's one in Cavan and one in Drogheda. Um, so women actually don't have a lot of options in terms mm. of their maternity care in Ireland as it is. And here we are looking at a proposal. Taking one choice, more, yeah, yeah, away from yeah, them. Okay. And, you know, yeah. um, the, the midwives, all the midwives associations, all very much supportive of uh, home births. And to me, they are the ones that know best. They are the ones that should be making these decisions. Yeah, I suppose midwives are much more likely to support, you know, um, women who who ultimately end up having a physiological birth, so end up having a vaginal a vaginal birth, whereas like obstetricians are much more likely to end up supporting women have got complications in pregnancy and are at a higher likelihood of needing their care. So yeah, you're right. I do think the midwives, you know, they they are they are the experts in mm. this and should be um, consulted and, and should be consulted. Yeah. Listen, thank yeah. you so much uh, for sharing your story uh, with us. And I, I take it young young Ty continues to be your bundle of joy, even though he's gone past oh, yeah. his first birthday at this stage. He's doing well. Oh, he's an absolute bundle of energy. He's, um, he's great fun and we enjoy him more and more every day. Yeah, he's coming to that wonderful, wonderful age where it's just yeah. all, it's all fun. Continue to enjoy, uh, Breda. And once again, thank you for sharing your story with us. Thanks so much, Patricia. Good morning to you. Uh, bye-bye. That is uh, Breda Lyons living in Ballysaggart on her wonderful home birth experience. 0818 103 103. We'll keep a, a close eye on this, but is at the moment a recommendation from the HSE that you could only get uh, a home birth paid for by the HSE if you were within a 30-minute ambulance drive of a maternity hospital. Text or WhatsApp 086 102 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Early year staffing and pay survey conducted by SIP2 and published today has found that almost 40% of early years staff are actively looking for a job outside of the sector. To find out more, I'm joined by Dara O'Connor from uh, SIP2. Uh, Good morning to Dara. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, You're welcome to the programme. Am I right in saying levels of pay the main reason why workers say they want to leave the sector? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think our survey uh, kind of reflected what what we've been hearing over the last couple of years is that services are really struggling to recruit and retain staff. And, and, and you hit the nail on the head, it's, it's pay is the biggest driving factor. So uh, we have these amazing early years educators, they're qualified, they're incredibly uh, you know, professional, um, but they're, they will be earning 11.57 per hour on average for an early years educator. And even someone with a, 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 a degree, you know, who's a room leader, would earn just 13.21 on average. So you know, in the middle of a cost of living crisis, these were already low wages. And now with the cost of everything going up, people are really struggling. And and as you say, and it's it's a good point to make, these uh, people are all uh, qualified because we we do a job slot on the programme every day and and we call it various jobs that are available in in the area. And whenever it's a childcare one, it always says you must have the various qualifications. I mean, they, you know, they're all qualified. Yeah, and I mean, that's a really good thing um, because we, we know that good, high-quality uh, early years or good, high-quality childcare has, can have really big benefits for children. It kind of sets them up for life and 
uh, builds kind of strong relationships with, you know, with the staff and is really kind of the foundation for the rest of their learning in primary, secondary school and, and so on. And it, it's, it is, it's a profession with its own right. Um, and, and that's the, it's real tragedy that, you know, we, we ask, and it's mostly women who are asking to train up, to get qualified, uh, to care and to educate for our children. Um, but a lot of people just simply can't make ends meet. So they're making really tough choices. They're, they're leaving their profession, the job they love, simply because, you know, people are making the choice between food on the table and paying rent. It, it's as stark as that. And even some people, uh, some educators using food banks. Uh, and we've been hearing about this new core funding model, which is due to be introduced uh, next month. I mean, is that going to help? Well, absolutely. And I think that there's been a long campaign by SIP2 members and, and a lot of other groups as well to address this low pay crisis. And um, I mean, we have to give the, the government recognition where it's due. And they have put um, uh, over 200 million on the table through this core funding to address address low pay. And we've just concluded negotiations on, a, on new minimum rates of pay, which will uh, see increases for a lot of people. Now, it's not the finish. It's just the start of that kind of journey towards professional paying conditions. But certainly you'd have to be optimistic and hopeful that we're going to turn a corner with this staffing crisis and the low pay crisis. Because I assume if, you know, people are aware that this is a low paid job, less people then will go into, will train and go into the profession. And then that must put enormous additional pressure on the staff that are already there working. Well, exactly. And even so, there's around 25,000 people working in the sector at the moment, but there's, a, there's way more than that are, are qualified. So there's no shortage of qualified staff. And really, you know, to attract people in, you need to have decent, you know, decent pay, certainly enough to be able to live on. And you need to have a, a you know, people need to be able to see a career out in front of them. But there is incredible stresses and strains on the staff who are there at the moment um, they're you know they're working because you know a service might be down staff others are working longer hours and I think the parents all over the country uh, got a real insight into just how tough that is during the pandemic when when they were at home trying mm-hmm. to juggle work and kids mm-hmm. at the same time it is a, an incredibly demanding job uh, it, it, it's very it's very tough and then people you know a lot of a lot of educators now are kind of stepping up above and beyond the call of duty um, and, you know, because of the staff in crisis, and we need to see that change. And this issue, Dara, isn't just about one industry because lack of affordable childcare has a knock-on effect for all other industries, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think if you think of, like, you know, a, a normal family with a couple of young kids, it's incredibly expensive. And, um, uh, you, you know, a lot of families are making really tough decisions about who's going to work and who's going to stay home because they can't afford childcare. And, it, it you know, generally it's the it's the mother who stays at home um, and it kind of restricts. It just means that it's very difficult to kind of pursue um, their own careers if it's so expensive as well. Um, so that's a huge knock-on. So you have kind of a lot of people who might want to go back to work in lots of different sectors and different industries, but they're not they're not able to. And I think that's why... You know, we want to we want to make sure that we have good quality. Right, the pay is attached to that as well. But you know, the the fees that parents pay have to come down as well. It's it's it 
it really is kind of driving that cost of living crisis as well, particularly for, for young families. OK, let's hope that this new core uh, funding is going to make the difference. In the meantime, Dara, thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme. Good morning to you. That is uh, Dara O'Connor from uh, SIP2. And Anthony texting us saying, I am six years working in uh, the childcare industry on €11 an hour as a male worker. There isn't a lot of male workers either uh, working in uh, childcare. Anthony says, I now hope to progress and go into the work of SNA. Hope to move on from early uh, years. Um, I have a diploma in uh, childcare. So you are one, Anthony, of that 40% that SIP2 spoke about when they spoke to early years staff who say they are actively looking for a job outside of the industry. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. To your calls and uh, comments. I wonder how people will react to this. Mary has contacted us uh, this morning over something that happened to her yesterday. And I'm just hoping that this really is just kind of isolated. She said Mary decided to do some shopping yesterday and she wanted to go into the city. So she hopped on the bus. It was yesterday afternoon. But when she got off the bus, she started to feel a little bit weak. And she realised it was quite a warm day. And it was. It was a gorgeous warm day yesterday. And actually temperatures at one stage went up to 24 degrees, which I didn't think that they were predicted to go that high. So it was a nice warm afternoon yesterday so Mary got off the bus started to feel a little bit weak you know I suppose started thinking you know I feel a little bit dehydrated here and need to get a drink of water so there was a coffee shop that she was passing and she went in uh, or or, uh, explained that she needed could she have a glass of cold water please now they willingly gave her the glass of cold water so she sat down on one of the seats outside the coffee shop to drink the water just you know while she tried to rehydrate herself and let this moment of weakness pass when a lady working in the cafe came out and said sorry you can't sit there that's for paying customers so Mary explained I've just got the glass of water because I'm feeling a bit weak blah 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 and this lady said no sorry those seats are for paying customers uh, only so she quickly tried to finish off the the drink and moved on so she went into a nearby shop she started explaining to the shop what had happened to her in the nearby cafe and they directed her to another restaurant and said go in there the people there will certainly look after you which I'm assuming that's what Mary did now Mary accepts that it was probably her own fault she should have bought a bottle of water with her normally when she's travelling like that on the bus on a warm day she would have a bottle of water with her but she forgot to bring her water bottle with her but she said her point and the reason she contacted us she just said is there no compassion there for people who are feeling a little bit unwell it wasn't that she was trying to skive something for free it was just that she felt unwell needed a glass of water now they did give her the glass of water which I think and I know we've looked into that before I think they're legally obliged if somebody comes looking for a glass of tap water that they must give it to you but she thought that they would let her sit for the few minutes while she sipped the water started to feel well and then she could have gone on uh, about her uh, business but she just feels lack of compassion and and bad PR as well I have to say because if you go somewhere and you were really well looked after maybe after Mary had finished her bits and bobs in the city when she was coming back to the train station or to the bus station or to the bus stop she might have remembered how kind the people were in that cafe and maybe gone in and had a cup of coffee or afternoon tea or something so I would think from a, a PR point of view for the cafe I would have thought uh, it was particularly bad. And I'm assuming from the thrust of Mary's call, it wasn't that there was a queue of people waiting for the seats. There was a spare seat at a table 
outside the cafe that Mary just sat down on while she was drinking the water. I would like to think that that's isolated and that most cafes would, you know, be more than willing to help somebody on a very warm day and would be full of compassion for people because even yesterday when we started the programme and we were talking about Bail Blaw and how warm it had been in Bail Blaw on Sunday afternoon for the for the 100th commemoration of the death of Michael Collins we we had got a number of calls in from people asking us if we could find out how that young soldier was who fainted about five minutes into Micheál Martin's the first oration and he just literally went down like a like a bag of potatoes the poor, the poor poor young fella and we had people saying I hope he was okay and people were saying it was the heat a bit of heat exhaustion you know and once he would have got a drink of water he probably would have been okay and we did find out that the Taoiseach himself had made the point of going to speak with that young soldier afterwards and to make sure that he was uh, feeling okay so there was certainly a lot of compassion for that young soldier yesterday so I would like to think that that really was uh, isolated but I also think kind of silly on behalf of the cafe if they were willing to give the glass of water you would understand that somebody's taking the glass of water because they're feeling a bit weak and anyone like that that would come in looking for a glass of water I'm assuming Mary you looked quite pale because if you get dehydrated and you know you're feeling a little bit weak like you are going to faint because you need to drink water you usually are very pale at the same time so they would have seen that you know you weren't just trying to get a free glass of water out of them and then sit outside and use one of their seats 0818103103 on petrol and diesel prices we spoke about that in the at the top of the programme this morning Joe because Joe and Kilmadic was on saying that he reckoned petrol in his area is remaining stubbornly high and he quoted us 194. And then I was saying that I had seen petrol and I'm really become I've become so eagle eyed at watching the price of petrol when I'm passing garages and particularly if I'm in an, a different area outside of where I live. I'm trying to see what are petrol prices and diesel prices like in other areas. And I certainly at the weekend saw petrol, I think as low as 181, I think was the lowest I saw. And I made the point I hadn't seen it going under the 180 mark, like anywhere in the 170s, even 179. Well, Eleanor and Carrigaline was listening to say she was in Rathcormick yesterday, who always seemed to be good when it comes to good value for petrol and diesel. She got petrol at 173. That's that, that is certainly the cheapest I've heard of. Well done, Eleanor, and no doubt you uh, filled up. And then when we were talking about petrol prices. And we were tying it in with the price of home heating oil because a couple of people have been on to us wondering is now a good time to buy home heating oil? And it certainly has dropped. It's down about 20% from where it was back in uh, June. And I mentioned about carbon tax and the fact that carbon tax went up in May. So on a fill of home heating oil, there'll be an extra about 20 euro added to your bill. And that, you know, is leading to the whole talk, the Certainly the Consumers Association are saying that something should be done about VAT um, home heating oil. And I was saying, what about carbon tax? Could that not be uh, reduced or even just put on hold for a period of time while we get over this cost of living uh, crisis? Somebody that has no name on this says, my understanding is that the EU is introducing a carbon tax on a phased basis and it will be fully in place by either 2025 or 2026. So unless Ireland was to abolish the tax, which you can't do unless you repeal the law as carbon tax has been legislated for, 
even then you would have to pay the EU carbon tax when that comes in in 2025-2026. So the carbon tax abolition is a pointless talking point as it's going nowhere. So you we would you would either end up having to get the EU to collect it or leave Ireland to collect it. Now I'm trying to find out what I can about an EU uh, carbon tax. The only thing I found out while the news was on there, did a quick Google search and Finland was actually the first country to introduce a carbon tax and they introduced it as far back as 1990 and up to earlier, I think it was April of this year, this article I'm reading uh, said 19 countries in Europe have carbon taxes. So not every country, but 19 countries in Europe has it. Sweden pay the highest amount on uh, carbon tax. They pay €116.33 per tonne of carbon emissions. And you compare that to Poland, they have the lowest carbon rate. Theirs is at 0.07 cent per metric tonne of emissions. So there's a huge a difference there in carbon tax in, in different countries. And we come out at kind of somewhere in the middle. We're seventh when it comes to so of the 19 countries who charge carbon tax. We are in seventh uh, place. So, but but no, I can't, that I bow to your superior knowledge, but I certainly have, haven't heard of uh, the EU introducing a carbon tax. I will certainly keep a close eye on that. And thank you to Nori who sent a WhatsApp in this morning to thank us for doing a shout out yesterday for her son Declan, a young 10 year old boy who had been at the Timmer League Festival over the weekend and he mislaid a much loved black jacket and it had quite a distinctive sign on the back and we did a shout out saying look somebody at the Timmy League Festival maybe as they were heading home would have spotted the jacket you know lying somewhere on a wall or on the back of a chair or something and would have said I'll take that home for safekeeping and then have this jacket turn to find out uh, who who it belonged to. Well, Noreen was back on this morning to say, following on her announcement uh, yesterday, Noreen says, I'm delighted to say we received a call from a lovely lady telling us the jacket has been found. So she just wants to say uh, thank you to us. Well, it was our pleasure to call it out. But thank you to the lady who had taken it home for safekeeping and good to know that your son who was really upset about losing his much loved jacket that he's getting or has already got his jacket back. Thank you for your WhatsApp Noreen to 086 and let me stay with the WhatsApps because John was on this to us by WhatsApp and he's planning on doing some travelling. Hi Patricia I'm just wondering I'm thinking of going to New York in July of 2023 with a friend of mine it'll be my first time visiting there so I just want to know do I need to get an ESTA visa for travelling to New York or will I be okay with my new passport? Yeah absolutely John will have to get an ESTA uh, visa. Uh, Anybody travelling to the United States for temporary business our pleasure must apply for an ESTA visa I haven't done it now in quite a few years but I know that you do it online and you'll be required to show that before boarding a US bound plane so yes you will need to apply for your ESTA and you don't need to do it yet you do it closer to the time so yeah you won't be getting on the plane and listen have a wonderful wonderful trip to New York it's a great city 0818 103 103. John Paul taking your call. C103 Jobs. In Island Lodge and Spa, they have a wide variety of job vacancies available. Now they've got bar and waiting staff, spa therapists, they're looking for a receptionist, pool attendants, a kitchen porter, house assistants, and spa evening cleaner. 
Email eshepherds at inchidoneisland.com. A dairy assistant is needed in the Lombardstown area. Full and part-time positions are available. Your contact is Richard on 87 Taxi and hackneys are needed to join a very busy base in Blarney. Please call 021 0214516666 for further details. And a general worker is wanted for building work. This time it's in the Mitchellstown area. No experience is necessary. Call 086 8786607. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. By the way, I can see lots of people having sympathy for poor Mary who went into that cafe, asked for the glass of water because she was feeling weak yesterday and then they asked her to move on when she sat outside to drink uh, the water. Uh, One person's saying that the staff uh, member maybe was a very young staff member. It sounds like somebody being very immature to say to somebody to move on while they were trying to have a drink of water having explained that they were feeling a little bit weak. Somebody else says that the cafe should should have shown more respect to uh, Mary. 0818 103 103. Now yesterday I mentioned that the president of the College of Psychiatrists of Ireland said the provision of mental health services in this country is in a dire state and that major problems are evident across the board especially for children and adolescents. Well, my next guest is a Cork mum who is currently battling the CAMS service for two of her children. And Elva O'Sullivan, originally from Mill Street but now living in Rochestown, joins me this morning. Good morning to you, Elva. Good morning. And you're, How are you? I'm very well and you're very welcome to the programme. I suppose, take me back and if you can outline, at what point did you realise that, I'm assuming it was your eldest boy, needed mm-hmm. some additional support? So Oren, he's 10 now. When he was about four, we realised that I suppose his uh, behaviours meant that they weren't typical for a four-year-old and we sought support. We went to our GP, we went to a private psychologist and we took him for play therapy. Um, And while we implemented a lot of strategies at home, we didn't see any, you know, improvement for him, for his quality of life. When he was seven, our GP felt it was an escalating issue and that he should be referred to CAM as an urgent uh, referral, which he was. Oren was lucky to be seen just before the pandemic, really. Um, so it was March of 2020, I guess, on Zoom. And at that time, CAM said to us they felt maybe he was autistic. So I put him on the public list for AON assessment of need. Knowing that that was going to take literally years, we sought a private assessment as well, had him identified as autistic, and I provided that information a number of months later to CAMS, only then to be informed that, well, CAMS don't look after children who are autistic. So that was my first understanding that not all support would be given based on clinical observation, budgetary constraints are at play as well. So I guess CAM's perspective, as they outlined to me, is that they're funded for mental health issues and that a different body of 
public health is funded to support autistic children. Unfortunately, so as soon as the word yeah, as soon as the word autism is mentioned, CAMS sort of say not our department. They do. So they say we think that all of these issues are related to the child being autistic. Therefore, go to your autism service and they will support you. Now that's a problematic approach on a number of practical levels. Number one, we know that the autistic population is a, has a much higher incidence of mental health issues and that runs the gamut from anxiety and depression to self-harming and eating disorders. We also know that early intervention, timely intervention is what makes the difference for those people and indeed for any person with any issue. The sooner you can get help to alleviate the struggles you face, the better your outcome will be. Absolutely. And it's because I was going, the fact that CAMS, the minute they hear, oh, it's an autism diagnosis, oh, you know, we can't help. I mean, it is well recognised and and it's backed up by what you're saying there, that people, children and adolescents and and, and adults who suffer from, uh, who have autism, not suffer Mm -hmm. from autism, have autism, can and do often have mental health issues. Of course, it's a well-known comorbidity. But I can tell you quite honestly that in the interim, uh, you know, I've been in touch with Cam numerous times. It literally doesn't matter what I say. They tell me that's autism and not what they deal with. And I mean, I, I smile when I say that because it's so fantastical to me that... You know, on the one hand, I understand that they're structured in certain ways. That's fine. But there's a duty of care here to children who are in need. And it's important to note then that while, you know, some of your listeners might think, well, why don't you just go to his autism service and get support here? I mean, I wish it were that simple. Mm -hmm. Of course I've been to his autism service. It's a battle to get him accepted in the first place. So I had to follow up mounds of paperwork to the in-win process, provide our private assessments to have him accepted onto a complex team. So the system now is if your child has needs in one area, they're seen by community health care. And if they have needs in multiple areas, they're deemed a complex case and they go to these CDNTs. And that's where Oren sits. So Oren doesn't appear in any of the waiting lists. He is a child who has a CDNT, but he doesn't receive any therapy, even though his service provider is being funded for his care. He's not getting any therapy. God, it's so frustrating. It's just, it's, it's, very frustrating. it's so frustrating because you, you're, you're, it's clearly been identified. The need, the Orange, Orange needs have clearly been identified. You know what he needs, yeah. and you, as his, as, as his mother, particularly knows uh, what he needs, and you can't get it. No. So, and so where, where, very... where is Oren at? What, what age is Oren now? Oren is ten, 10. now. Oh. To your point about parents knowing them best, you know. That is totally true, and I want to be his mother. I don't want to be his psychologist, his occupational therapist, his speech and language therapist. His CDNT is meant to have child-centred, family-led care, and none of that happens. They have 0.8 of one psychologist on his team for 650 children. And I understand all of those constraints. The reality for us in our family is that there is no support for this child that we've been looking after so well that we knew before he needed support and six years later we're still struggling to get any you know and then you had the additional problems in that your younger son started to identify I'm I'm assuming similar to Oren was it it's funny you know well maybe it's not funny but he is 
certainly worth remarking that no, he didn't, you know, oh. he didn't seem to me to be like Oren at all when he was small. Um, but I thought, you know, fool me once, I'll put this child on an assessment list so if we need it in the future. Uh, but then Killian started school and we understood that he just wasn't coping in that environment at all and that, you know, it was really, really difficult. Oren obviously thrives in school, he absolutely loves it. Oh, Killeen was assessed and identified as autistic as well when he was six. And I knew for him that wasn't the full picture. I felt perhaps ADHD was at play. Um, and the severity of his behaviours at school meant that our GP sent an urgent referral for Killeen um, in February of 2021 when Killeen was six to CAMS. And our first contact from CAMS was Thursday of this week. He had his first appointment Thursday, sorry, of last week. So, you know, that's 18 months in the life of a six-year-old. It's a very long time. It's a huge portion of his life, and it's a real missed opportunity. Now, we were lucky that in the interim, we sought private care. I tried every available avenue in Munster to have him assessed for ADHD, but, you know, to no avail. So, you know, the private services are struggling too because they're dealing with the overflow from the public services. We took him to Dublin and luckily he's on a medication now that really suits him and has vastly improved his quality of life and ours as well. Cam told me this week that um, they won't accept that private assessment. Uh, that's been going on for years. You have to come off his medication. Yeah will mean a huge regression for Killeen and it will mean, you know, that is literally not what we need going into second class, going into school again, you know. And it's very frustrating, very difficult to discuss anything logically. To me, it seems, again, a duty of care issue that you have a child who has been assessed and diagnosed and is on a medication that's helping them, that it is what you would give them if you had assessed them. And you want to take the child off and reassess, you know. So now I don't know what to do. Do I do that and disimprove his quality of life? Do I continue driving him still in for treatment, you know? It's a tough position. And both boys are in school. They'll be heading back next week, I they take are. it, is it? Yeah, but it's and it's interesting listening to you. Like they both had an autism diagnosis, but they both seem very different, which is yeah, so I typical, mean, isn't it, of autism? Autism, you know, they say you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person, right? So it affects all people in different ways. And I think uh, certainly when I was growing up, I had a particular idea of autism. Now we know a lot more about autism and we understand that there are many comorbidities with autism which make it look different to different people. So my children have low support needs verbally and academically and physically. So by that I mean they're, uh, they don't have an intellectual disability, they don't have a physical disability, they don't have any speech delays, you know, they can speak, right? They do have high support needs in other areas, particularly social and emotional, but also in other facets of speech, like expressive and um, I suppose maybe understanding written words and stuff like that. But in order for them to lead fully productive lives, they need the help in those areas now. 
you see, this is it. I mean, really what I want for them is to have access to their community the same as other children. So I want them to be able to attend school and play and have friends the same as other children. And by that, I mean, it, it'll look how it looks for them, but that there won't be a barrier there because they haven't received therapies that they need to help them be as comfortable as they can be in their own skin. And then, you know, I suppose some people balk at the idea of productive life for kids, but it is what I want for my yeah, children. It's, I want it's what every parent, it's, go to Albert, yeah, it's what yeah. every parent wants. It, it really is. So, so Oren, you say thrives in school, but Killeen struggles. Uh, yeah, Oren just, I know he's a fantastic school. It's, um, it's a developing school, so it's been very badly affected by the effect of cuts in resource teaching and SNAs. Um, you know, there's been a hiring for three years in those areas. So a developing school who has 300 more children now than it did three years ago is going to feel the impact of that even more. So that's compounding the issues. But our school is really supportive. Oren thrives there. He loves learning and he loves structure. and He loves playing mm-hmm. with his friends and all of that. For Killeen, you know, he's younger. He, he has, Oren, I suppose, has an understanding of uh, his disability and his need to regulate and he can participate a bit in that. Killeen is still learning still about very young. himself. Still very the young. Noise in there is very difficult. Yard it's... time is so confusing for him. You know, why did the rule change in tag from today to yesterday, which is just normal tag, but his perception of it is different, you know. So it's a really challenging environment for Killeen. We're very lucky that he has um, some friends that, you know, really include him. So we feel really, really lucky there. But honestly, none of it would be so difficult if the government could intervene and try and get the HSE to be responsible for what they're meant to be responsible for. The questions I have over the years are, where is the funding for my child being spent? My service provider is being funded for my children. We're not receiving the therapies. Where is that money going? I have raised formal complaints about the AON process and about the CAMS process, all of which have been upheld. I'm happy to provide any of that information. And nothing changes, you know. I and you and you as a mother then the yeah you as a mother and as you said you just want to be their mother but you're now yeah. suddenly you're, you're their advocate and you're and you've just got a battle at every single uh, turn and you have another you have another child a daughter I do and yeah. Aideen herself um is about to turn 12 and she was born at 29 weeks so she has had her own journeys um, when she but luckily, she's very well now, and she's a fantastic sister to her brother. Oh, really but tough, to tough her. on Aideen as well. That, that very tough it's on It really her. is tough. It really it is tough. It predicates how we do everything, you know. So what holidays we take, yeah. or if we take a holiday, what day trip, whether we go to the shop or not, you know. Um, and I suppose we're we're well able to look after ourselves, right? You know, we seek out information, and we read and we implement strategies at home and I'm lucky to do that with you know supportive family and so on not everybody is in that position you may have multiple children with multiple needs it's worth noting that neurodivergencies like ADHD and autism 
have a genetic factor. So often parents have their own needs that they're looking after. And, you know, if their needs were missed when they were young, maybe mm. they're battling mental health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a systemic societal issue. And the fact that it's being ignored by the people I vote for in the government is really upsetting me, I have to say. The fact that I've reached out to my TDs on numerous times, numerous, numerous occasions in writing, called them, texted them, everything, and I cannot get any positive engagement. It really upsets me. I feel like I follow all the rules. I raise the complaints, you know. And nothing's been done. Um, and and it's, like, it's, it's almost like nobody's listening. You were, were you part of FOSS, um, the protest we spoke about on the programme last week? They, 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 they had another protest on Saturday. Yes, I was. So, you know, I feel lucky to have found that group of people. They're all parents and families with children with different disabilities. And, you know, my version of events is only one. There are also many families out there who are funding their own equipment like wheelchairs and bath aids because they can't get them from the HSEs that are funded to provide them to them, you know. And yet, so, you know, you look you look at the health budget and at every turn they just seem to more money gets ploughed into it. It's like it's a big black hole. Where, where, do, where does the, the billions of billions of euro where that they, yeah, where does it go? I mean, if only we had someone in government who was responsible for looking at public expenditure and reform, wouldn't that be fantastic if they could cast a glance in that direction, you know? Listen, um, you're so look, you're an amazing you're an amazing mother and your boys uh, and Aideen, uh, your your children are are lucky to to have you but it's it's an unfortunate long journey that you're on and and I'd love to say it'll all finally come to an end in the coming weeks and months but I think you're going to be on this journey uh, for quite some time but listen Elba thank you for sharing your story uh, with us this morning and uh, continue good luck and good health uh, to all uh, all of your children thanks for joining us and good morning to you bye bye that is uh, Elba Sullivan from um, Rochester in Cork talking about the battles that she is having to get her sons the therapies that they require 0818 103 103 John Paul's taking your calls you can text her WhatsApp to 0862 103 103 Cork today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group they don't just talk the talk they walk the walk cmig.ie from the creator of Ross O'Carroll Kelly Paul Howard's smash hit musical comedy Copperface Jack's The Musical opens tonight in the Opera House and runs through until next Sunday the 28th with an array of well-known faces I'm delighted to say I'm joined by one of them and that's Stephen O'Leary who plays Zach in uh, Fair City um, Good morning to you Stephen Morning Patricia, how are you? I, I'm, ver- I'm very well um, You play the role of Mossy, is it Munnix? Mossy Munnix, yes Munnix. Uh, a very Kerry, a name born in Kerry, so I believe. Okay, t- tell me about the character of Mossy. <clears throat> well, the, he's from Carrasivine in County Kerry, and uh, he's married to a girl called Nolene Nigaro, and uh, who's played by Sarah Gordon. So Nolene travels to Dublin to pursue her dream job in the VHI, and uh, she falls in love with the captain of the Dublin football team. <laughs> so, while um, married, while married to you. While engaged to Massey Munnix. Oh, while engaged. Okay. <laughs> so Massey Munnix is, a, is a, a kind of a young man from Kerry. He owns a wind farm. Um, he's a young man, but a very old-fashioned young man, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, so he gets wind of the, this uh, 
of this relationship that has started between the two guys in Dublin and he travels to Dublin and then mayhem ensues in Copperface Jack. <laughs> so he goes to Dublin to try to fight for the love of his life, is it? Exactly, yeah. in, in the most Kerry-fashioned way he can. <laughs> I'm just thinking, because you're a Corkman, what's it like a Corkman playing a Kerry man? It's, it's, I'll tell you, it's nerve-wracking is what it is. I, <laughs> I mean, we've done the play in the Olympia now and... Uh, I mean, I like to think that my character, I'm from Rathcormick in County Cork, so I'm not too far away, you know. Um, but I just get nervous and Kerry, people from Kerry come to see the show. I just hope that I'm doing... I'm sure you are. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you are. So is, is the story then very much almost like the dubs versus the Colchies? Yeah, that's what it ends up doing. So it's like the, the Kerry football team and the Dublin football team, they always meet in coppers and uh, they're playing their All-Ireland semi-finals. So it becomes a thing. And then when Mossy comes up, it becomes kind of a Kerry versus Dublin football and kind of a love triangle as well so okay, and, and we're obviously not going to give the ending away whether you get to to keep the love of your life yeah well, you'll have to wait we'll have to, we'll, ha- we'll have to go along no there's there is as, as I mentioned you you're your uh, people will know you from uh, Fair City uh, Stephen but there's there's a fantastic lineup of some of TV's most loved shows isn't there some of the the, the cast yeah, well, we have Johnny Ward uh, playing the lead, Gino Royals, who's the captain of the Dublin football team, like I said. Johnny's incredible in the part, so you know him from Fair City. And I love hate. I love hate. Yeah. And then you have Fiona, Fiona Carroll from uh, Mrs. Brown's Boys, who plays Gretchen, who is an American girl, who's kind of who kind of gets caught up in the whole love triangle as well. Um, and we have some fantastic performances then by from Sarah Gordon, who plays the lead female in it. And you've Donica O'Dee, who is in Fair City as well. Um, and then Owen Collins, uh, Shane Fallon, but a fantastic, fantastic cast. You know, it's brilliant. It's it 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 really is brilliant. Now it it played at the Olympia Theatre. I'm sure that it it played three times. Yeah. So we our first year we started this in 2018, and we did a run in the Olympia, and then again in 2019 in the Olympia. So this tour that we're doing now was was due to happen in 2020 and 2021, but obviously because of COVID, you know, it was um. It was put off, so this is our this is our first time back since 2019. Um, so this year we started in the UCH in Limerick, and then we've just finished our three weeks in the Olympia. But just can't cannot wait for tonight to get back onto Cork. Yeah. I mean, but it's I mean, the I, first I, time in Cork. It's the very first time in Cork. It's the very first time outside of Dublin was, yeah. was Limerick this year, you know. Yeah, because uh, you know, I mean, anyone who's ever been to Coppers, uh, and and I'm sure you've been there yourself on many occasions, have you? Uh, the odd time. Ah, the odd time. Yeah, the odd time. But any of us can't go from down the country heading up to Dublin, you always had to include a trip to Coppers. I, I just oh, don't know what would, it was. Yeah. It was just you going to Coppers. Of course, we're going to Coppers. Um, um, but but it is Coppers is very is very much a Dublin venue. But there's such a great mix there. It's a fantastic mix. Yeah, well, I suppose with the GEA, with like the people from the country coming up have kind of made it their home and over the years. Really, it's. Uh, like I remember coming up when I was eight, nineteen eighteen for a Cork GAA game to see in Crow Park and just the crack you would have inside there, you know. <laughs> Afterwards. But it's uh it's definitely it's just a, it's a part of it's a part of Dublin culture and, and, and people coming up to Dublin it's a part of the culture up there, you know. And um, it's it's hard to even imagine that you can take something as iconic as Coppers and turn it into a musical. I mean, yeah, I think that's what it like. Coppers the musical, the title of the, you know, the title of the of the of the show is Coppers the musical. I'm, I'm, I kind of think that pe- when people hear it first, they 
they really don't know what to expect, you know. Or um, like, what could this show be? Copper's the musical. But uh, I mean, it's just such a treat for us as actors to have Paul Howard behind us with his writing, because um, he does it so well, and like all the characters are, their energy is so high and they're so over the top. But what he does so well is that when you meet people after the show, like like Massey Munnix is a very over the top character, a caricature of someone from that area. But every time I meet someone after the show, I always hear, "Geez, I know someone like him. You remind me so much of this young fella from down there." Which is, it kind of took me by surprise first. I, yeah. like, I didn't think there would be anyone like this guy that I'm playing, but <laughs> that's what Paul Howard does so well. You know? Yeah, he's, he, he is. He really, he really is uh, a, a genius. Uh, and as you mentioned, you are a Rathcormac uh, native. So yeah. this is very much bringing the show home, isn't it? Oh, it really is, yeah. I mean, I would have been in shows in the Opera House as a kid. My, my, mother, has, my mother was an actress, Valerie, and she's been teaching at the Monforts, um stage school for years now so we would have done shows as kids in the opera house and uh, I think the last show I did there when I was 13 was Ikeno remember Ikeno I do I do yeah yeah. I played I played the young Damien Duff in that show so that was the last time I was in the opera house and um, I was just like I can't wait for tonight just to be back this is my first time as an adult coming back to to the venue you know and uh, and will you have a lot of family and friends going along to see you Ah, she was the whole of Rackcormick up on the bus there during the week. <laughs> That'd be brilliant. That it, it would be really brilliant. And something like this, um, Stephen, like this kind of stage work, very different to your role in Fair City. Yeah, it, it is, and I suppose that's what that's what I love so much about the job is that you can you can go from one job to the other, and they're completely different, and they just need diff- like like I said, different energies, you know. Um, like coppers needs a different energy than Fair City, I suppose, and. It's just about knowing the piece that you're in and, and finding what that particular piece needs. So for coppers, like the writing is so funny that if you just pump it with energy and energy, it's it's gonna it's gonna give the writing what it needs, you know. Whereas if I walk onto set in Fair City and acted like I did as I do with money for fifty minutes, it just wouldn't work. I think <laughs> you'd be in the wrong show. <laughs> I'd be in the wrong yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, Kiki uh, joined us last week on the program. He was for his. Um, play that's running in, in the Everyman and yeah. you know uh, what, what we were talking about you know the pandemic and lockdown and how hard that was for for everyone mm-hmm. uh, but it's it, it everybody needs everybody wants to get back out and it's to and, and people are slowly yeah. but surely getting back to some kind of a, a normality not that Covid has gone away but getting back to some kind of a normality but there's nothing like going to a theatre for a live show it's I, I can I know, never expect this. Like you can go to the cinema and enjoy a good movie and whatever, but it's to be in a theatre with other people, with live actors and actresses on stage. There's something really special about it. It's so true, and I think even us as a cast in this. I remember we, when we when we started in Limerick. Like, obviously the pandemic was hard for everyone. So there wasn't any live stuff happening, you know. But I just remember that first reaction from the first audience in Limerick. I didn't. We didn't even realize how much we actually missed that, you know. Because that's what this show is. It's just a great night out, and it's, it's just you know it's great crack, and and people are just laughing from start to finish, you know. So it's, I think it's a great one for people to get back out and just have a great night out after all the stuff that's happened over the last two years, you know. God knows we can all do with it, do do with a laugh. Yeah. Uh, will you stay? Yeah. Will you stay at home sure, for the week or? Yeah, I think I will. I mean, I'm rock warmish. It's a half an hour drive, yeah. up, you know, so it's not too bad. But uh, I, you know, I love coming home. I I come home whenever I can. So um. Like I said, I'm just excited to be at home now for this week and be able to go into the opera house each night and and have Mammy cooking dinner. 
Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing like it. Keep yeah. your bedroom tidy now while you're home, okay? I know. I yeah. Have to, yeah. Yeah. After me now, yeah. That's the important thing. <laughs> Listen, Stephen, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Enjoy every single performance at the uh, Cork Opera House. And thanks a million for taking time out to talk to us. I will, Patricia. Lovely to talk to you. And lovely to talk to you. Thanks a million. Bye bye. That is the lovely uh, Stephen O'Leary, who, as I say, people will, from a face point of view, will know him as Zach in Fair City. Copper Face Jack's musical opens in the Opera House tonight, and you can get tickets. They are available. It runs. It's a one week run. It's through until uh, next uh, Sunday. So uh, tickets are available at www.corkoperahouse.ie. Someone says, Hi, Patricia. I didn't get who Stephen plays in a Fair City. He plays the part of Zach, kind of a troubled team, uh, teen in uh, Fair City. He was um, Tom Dillon's son. I think John Paul told me not the biggest fan of Fair City and he's the character of Zach is in jail at the moment <laughs> uh, and somebody else says I love Stephen in uh, Fair City I'm a huge Fair City uh, fan uh, 0818103103 so your chance to see Stephen and a great this massive um, lineup uh, in Coppers at the Opera House as I say opens tonight and runs through until next Sunday OK we need to take a break we have news at 12 midday on the way Court today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Okay, can anybody offer help, please, to one of our listeners, John, in New Tupot House. He's just contacted us to say there is a hive of bees in his back garden. He said it's on the branches of a low-hanging tree, so it looks like it's pretty easy access uh, to it. He's looking for advice, or is there somebody that could remove it, please? Well, the first advice is do not touch it yourself, uh, John. You need to get... Ideally, a local beekeeper will come will will come and help you out. Uh, so let's put a shout out to see is there any local beekeepers in the new two pot house area just outside of Mallow that can help out John. We obviously have all of John's uh, details. If somebody can help us there or if there isn't a local beekeeper, can somebody suggest who we can contact or who John can contact to remove that hive of bees in his garden. Let us know if you can help us out on that one, please. John Paul taking your calls 0818103103. And then Michael in Court McSherry was on to us uh, this morning. I've been talking about Court McSherry and what was found yesterday and uh, the oh, the town or the main street in Court McSherry was closed off for a portion of time and the bomb disposal experts had to come in but thankfully all of that uh, sorted itself out yesterday afternoon but John is on or Michael in Court Mac is on to us about a different uh, issue he said they're having a problem in Court Mac with household rubbish been put into the street bins and Michael said recently there was wine bottles sticking out of one of these bins and Michael says please 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 could people refrain from doing this and I'm wondering is it holiday makers that are doing it surely you wouldn't have local people who would be taking their wine bottles and putting it into the street bins but anyone disposing of household rubbish it's one of the reasons that the council have removed bins from other parts of the county and and I'm, I'm assuming it's happened in the city as well but I remember a number of years ago doing an interview with Cork County Council when they were removing the street bins they were saying one of the reasons that they had to remove it was that people were dumping household uh, rubbish which seems you know because of course all of this began uh, when the 
bins went private. There was a time when the local authority collected everybody's bins and we didn't have a problem with people uh, fly tipping and we didn't have a problem with people using the public bins. But when people don't want to pay certain bills, one of them being to have their bins collected, they'll do anything to get rid of the rubbish instead. So please, if you're in the Cork McSherry area, will you dispose of your rubbish responsibly? But certainly for somebody to be with so many bottle banks dotted all over this country, it doesn't make any sense to me how why anyone would go to a local bin and decide to put wine bottles in it instead of bringing it to a bottle bank makes no sense to me. Thank you for your call, Michael, to 0818 103 103. And Irish Water have been on to us in the last hour, uh, or sorry, in the last few minutes, um, to say, along with Cork County Council, they are working to restore water as quickly as possible to customers impacted following an outage at the Fremont Water Treatment Plant last night. The areas affected are Milford, Liscarroll, Fremont, Brigogue and the surrounding areas. They're aware of the outage, they're working on it and they are hoping to have water restored to that area as quickly as possible. That's anyone who gets their water from the Fremont Water Treatment Plant. There was an outage there last night. We were talking about the price of petrol and diesel and that it is coming down in price. And we had somebody who gave us a great example of 173 in Rathcormac uh, last week for petrol. Certainly the cheapest we've heard of. John in Clonakilty still reckons that petrol prices are still high, even though they're falling. But he says they're still high. He says he reckons the average now where he is in Clon. Between 187, 190 on average. But he says you've got to remember that the reduction in the government in the excise duty on petrol and diesel that the government introduced, it was 20 cent on a litre of petrol and it was 15 cent, wasn't it, on a litre of uh, diesel. And uh, he said, so if that increase was, or that excise, the full excise duty was still there, it would mean that the petrol prices that John is looking at at the 187 would be at two euro and seven cent or the are the if it's 190 where you're buying it it would be two euro and ten cent John said none of this is making sense to him because the price of the barrel of oil on the world market is at one of its lowest levels certainly in quite some time it's at 96 dollars a barrel so he says he just can't understand why the prices are still so high and then William in uh, Mitchellstown he was in the process of getting a new electric car and we're all being told that that's the way we should be going we should be moving to electric cars and the government have set the kind of a target of a million electric cars on the road is it by 2030 and not a hope that that's going to happen but there, there are people buying electric cars but anyway William and Mitchellstown all set to go buy his electric car but he said then he started to get worried because we're hearing almost on a daily basis that there's going to be power cuts during the winter months we were only talking about it again uh, yesterday so William says if we ended up in a situation where we had power cuts in the winter and William's gorgeous shiny new electric car is parked outside his door waiting on a charge and he's got no electricity to get it uh, charged. He said, what's the option? Do you buy an electric car and it comes with a bicycle? So you have to get on your bicycle until the electricity is back on. So he said he did a complete change of mind and he's got and bought a, a new diesel car instead. The Greens won't be happy, happy with you with that, William. But I don't think you're the first person that certainly 
has stopped and thought about buying an electric car because there has, has been so much talk about power outages as we head into the winter months. Can we wish you many, many happy years of motoring, uh, William? And then Sheila was on to us. This is reacting to Mary, who had contacted us, one of our first calls in this morning, who was in the city, well, the city suburbs uh, yesterday and she got the bus from the county up to the city to do a little bit of shopping. When she got off the bus, she started to feel a little bit weak and realised it was very warm. She'd forgotten her water bottle. She'd forgotten to bring it with her from home. So she went into a local uh, cafe, explained she wasn't feeling very well. Could she have a drink of water? So they gave her a glass of water. She came back out. There's tables and chairs outside the cafe, as you'd find in all cafes. Sat down to drink the glass of water and suddenly hot on her heels was a member of staff who came out and said, you can't sit on those seats there for paying customers only and got her to move on and she was quite upset about it and she went into a shop told the story in the shop and the shop said well if you go over there to another restaurant they'll certainly or cafe they'll certainly look af- after you but she contacted us to say it's just is the compassion gone out of people you know wouldn't you willingly help somebody out who's feeling a little bit weak they just want a glass of water five minutes to drink the glass of water and she'll go about her merry way uh, Sheila says at um, most restaurants in Bantry if you know somebody and you're having a cup of coffee and you're there's outside seating Sheila says she's often seen people and she's done it herself. You can sit down and have a quick chat with somebody. There's no obligation to buy anything. So she was surprised to hear that story out of the city. And somebody else said recently they were having a glass of beer in a restaurant in uh, West Cork and they were waiting for a person to pick them up. So they obviously the glass of beer was finished, but they were waiting for somebody to come and collect them. And somebody working in the restaurant uh, came over and almost told the person, well, if you're not ordering another drink, you need to get up and uh, leave, which is really, really surprising. So I suppose it depends on the restaurants and the cafes that you are going into. But as I say, most, I think, uh, do have compassion and most recognise that it's good PR to look after your customers because you never know when that person's going to be passing your door again and might decide to come in and purchase something in your restaurant, your cafe or indeed your business. 0818 103 103. And thank you to Stephen in County Kerry who is back on to us today. Stephen contacted the programme yesterday when we were talking about Bail Nabla and we were talking about how well the commemoration had gone on Sunday at Bail Nabla. And Stephen was one of those who had contacted us to say that what he saw on the TV of the work that was done on the ambush site he wasn't that happy with it. He said it looks like it's a tourist attraction. He said the promenade looks like something you'd see in a luxury hotel. And he really wasn't. He thought it should have been left. And he actually quoted the lovely monument in Kilmichael. And he said, you know, why didn't they just leave it as it was? He just didn't feel looking at it on, on TV. He wasn't that happy with the great work that had been done by Cork County Council. Well, Stephen is back to us this morning to say, well, Patricia, it's only fair that I reevaluate my view on the uh, works that happened in Bailnablaw. I went up there yesterday evening and I have to say, says Stephen in County Kerry, it looks much better in real life than it did on TV. And I like how they've also marked the spot where he fell. So credit where credit is due to everybody involved in the updated works on Bailnablaw. And then Stephen is also commenting on the fact that Stephen and I must be pretty much on the same wavelength because he also, like me, uh, was watching the Taoiseach give his oration 
on Sunday on the TV and the very same thought that I had ran through Stephen said he was watching it and he said uh, dear God it'll be alright if one of those army lads don't pass out the way they're expected to stand motionless for an hour in that heat and Stephen said 10 seconds later down the young fella goes like he was poleaxed. I almost felt like it was my fault. God love him, says Stephen. And the identical thing went through my head, Stephen, at almost the same time. Because when he fainted then, I thought the same thing. I said, God, did I jinx it by actually thinking about it? So, yeah, we're very much on the same wavelength. But good to know that you decided, rather than just look at the Bale and the Blaw site and make an opinion based on TV, that you went and actually walked the site. So, thank you. We appreciate your text to 0862. 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. Ballinhasic Community Development Association are having a clothes collection in the Marion Hall in Ballincollig and it's Ballinhasic and it's running throughout the month of August. Now it's to raise funds for the Marion Hall car park and bags can be dropped up to the 27th of August on Tuesdays, so this evening and on Thursdays between 7pm and 8.30 and then also on Saturdays between half two and four. Used rewearable clothing please, shoes, bags, towels, sheets, blankets, curtains and duvet covers but no duvets are uh, pillows. And an exhibition entitled Souls of Our Shoes is on in the West Wing of the Carrick Centre in Ballincollig. It's running throughout this month. It aims to highlight the stories of people who have experienced physical and emotional abuse. And the doors are open daily throughout August from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Cork Craft and Design. Their annual showcase exhibition will be held in the Old Mill in Castletown Roach and it's on today. It runs until the 28th of August with the, uh, or it's not open today, sorry, it's open throughout the month of August for Thursdays through to Sundays from 10am to 5pm. Shambhali Moore Bingo is on tonight at 8pm. Jackpot 2,600 euro in 48 calls or less. Everybody welcome to uh, come along and the Eugene Cronin Memorial Walk that is taking place on Saturday registration is at Bantry Tourist Office at 11am it's a free event with donations on the day to Bantry Hospital and Canturk Fire Station they've got a special family open day happening at the new station there'll be a car cutting demonstration chance to look around the fire engine and meet the crew and a raffle and hot and cold drinks will be served there will be a bucket collection on the day with all proceeds going to the air ambulance. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. And when Michael contacted us from Court McSherry asking people to please stop putting the domestic rubbish into the street bins, and he said uh, he passed one day this week and there was wine bottles actually sticking out of the bins that didn't even go to the wouldn't you be ashamed to do it you'd be trying to hide it if you were putting it into the street bin but obviously uh, some people have absolutely no shame at all uh, somebody's just texted in to say that's not just not a problem happening in West Cork there are some people living in Mill Street who always put their household rubbish into the town bins and they do it openly you'll always have some people who will pay 
for absolutely nothing says this uh, texter and Sylvester on the high price what some people are st- even though petrol and diesel is coming down in price it is still very very expensive Sylvester says Patricia people just need to get used to the fact that the price of petrol and diesel will not decrease much anymore Sylvester reckons the price of fuel at the petrol stations he reckons will vary between 170 and and up to 2 euro and it will stay that way. He says it's not all related to the war in Ukraine. He has his own theory. He said everybody knows when you buy a litre of petrol or diesel there are various taxes. Now Sylvester's theory is that there are more and more electric hybrid and plug-in cars for which there's a very low road tax paid. The Irish government have to come up with something to close the gap between a gap on engine capacity and a tax on CO2 emissions and then add to that the zero tax on electric cars. And he reckons because of that, it's always going to keep petrol and diesel prices high. But the government will come back and say, Sylvester, we did give you a bit of a break with the 20 cent reduction in excise duty on petrol and 15 cent on diesel, which by all accounts is going to be extended in the budget when the budget comes out at the end of uh, September. And God, do we need that budget at the end of uh, September. And remember, we're having an earlier budget due to the increased pressure to tackle the rising cost of living. Depressing reading on the papers uh, today from groups that are helping families who are really struggling. I mean, the, the obvious group that always jumps to mind when you help think of people struggling is the societies of Vincent de Paul. And they are now saying that they are expecting a record number of people to seek their help this year as the cost of living crisis intensifies and there's new figures out indicating there will be likely further hikes in the price of some of our stable groceries. The Society of Vincent de Paul say it's already seen a 20% increase in the numbers of struggling households coming to them looking for help this year. Tricia Keelty, who's Head of Social Justice at VDP, she said about one in three calls to the charity were from families and people facing food poverty. She says it's the one bill that people feel they have control over. So it's the first thing that gets cut, they say, at SVP. They're planning for a very, very difficult uh, winter. They say they are they're expecting that they're going to receive record levels of calls by the end of this year. And she says around 40% of all of the calls usually come into them in the run-up to Christmas. And they reckon that's going to even be higher. And the charity is also dealing with calls from people who have never needed support from SVP are people who would have last needed their support was during the last uh, recession. And a new monthly index of wholesale prices is suggesting likely increases in the price of things like fish and dairy foods for customers in the coming weeks. Underlying an increase in dairy and wholesale prices generally is the sharp rise in energy costs, which continue to accelerate during the month of July. And that's obviously heaping additional costs on energy intensive activities. And you think of things like milking, cows have to be milked and manufacturing. Uh, so all all items that end that uses any kind of energy we can expect to see are going to rise in uh, prices. And while that was the theory, the opinion coming from Society of Vincent de Paul, Colette Bennett is the economic and social uh, analyst with Social Justice Ireland and indeed 
Colette has, we've spoken with Colette many, many times. She said she had concerns that the coming months would see vulnerable households facing pressures not seen since the last recession. She reckons we are going to start seeing post 2008 levels of debt and people struggling. This will mean more households on low incomes will be pushed towards loan sharks. And of course, loan loan sharks charge exorbitant interest rates. And the fear is that people will resort to illegal money lenders. Are the fear is that many people will go without food. And Tanya Ward is with she's the chief executive of the Children's Rights uh, Alliance. She said she was also concerned about the impact of continued rising costs facing low income families. And she says when there's pressure on the rent or when there's pressure on an electricity or a gas bill, the family, what they what do they do? The one bill they can cut back on, they come back on food. And she said the people, the families that they work with, she said parents will go without food to make sure that their children are fed. And the new CSO data outlined wholesale electricity prices rose by 86% annually and 43% from June to July. Uh, there, the utility companies obviously then have had to pass them on to consumers in the form of higher uh, bills. And as have, we've heard from a number of our listeners whose electricity bills have started to arrive, their summer bills, which are usually the lower bills of the year, many people are saying their summer bill is as high as what their winter bill would normally be. And that is one of the reasons that the government have have said that they're going for an earlier budget this year, 27th of September, due to the increased pressure and to try to tackle the rising cost of living. I think never before has there been so much expectations around next month's uh, budget. Let's hope we're all feeling a little bit pleased after the budget announcement is made. 0818 103 103. John Paul, taking your calls. You can text, you can WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. This is the Court Today replay on C103. Just very quickly, just saw a lovely uh, text in from Anne-Marie, one of our listeners. And I love these texts because, you know, obviously uh, people contact the programme when they want to give out about something. And that's fine. and That's all well and good. And we're here to air people's grievances. But it's always nice when something good happens or you get particularly good service and people take the time out to acknowledge good service. And that's what Amory wants to do this morning. Amory says, Hi Patricia, I have to use the train uh, quite a bit recently. So I've used the facilities at Kent Station in the city. May I please compliment the lady who manages the cleaning of the toilets there. The building is old, which can make it harder to keep clean. But in, tense, in Kent Station, the sinks, the loos, the floors and the surfaces are always absolutely spotless. I was genuinely impressed with the level of cleanliness on every occasion I've been there. So the last time I asked the lady there, what was her name? She said her name was Tina. Patricia, she looks after the place as if it was her own home. And I just want to say thanks to Tina in Kent Station for making every journey through the train station a more pleasant experience. Isn't that lovely? Well done. Thank you for that, uh, Anne-Marie. And if anybody knows, I don't have a surname on Tina. If anybody knows who Tina is, who keeps Kent Station spotlessly clean, can, uh, can you sit, Can you tell her in case she's not listening to us because she's probably hard at work can you tell her that we gave her a mention and to say well done and that's the kind of service that we need to see more of Joe Heffernan joins me on this Tuesday afternoon good afternoon to you Joe 
Good afternoon, Patricia. And you're very welcome uh, to yeah. the programme. Now, we last week started talking about the symptoms of depression because, unfortunately, with everything going on and everything that we've come out of with lockdowns and the pandemic and COVID very much still there and the war in Ukraine, unfortunately, uh, we're seeing an increase in depression. And last week we were talking about the symptoms of depression. So we want to move it on for people uh, today and to very much talk about can we help ourselves? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, sometimes our thinking can be very skewed and um, we need to, as it were, think about our thinking. So, yeah, we could we could mention a few things to do with that. Um, and, and, of course, the number one thing that we can do is talk to a trusted person about what's troubling us. Um, uh, you, you know, bottling stuff up um, is not... Uh, is not helpful. It's not the way to go. And um, whether whether a trusted friend um, or family member or a professional person in the line of counselling psychotherapy, someone that we can trust that will um, respect our confidentiality, um, that's uh, that's uh, that's number one. To okay. open up a bit. Yeah, and the old adage, uh, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved. It, I mean, Absolutely. It, it can, it can and, and it does work. And then there's practical things. And this can be hard for somebody who's really battling uh, depression. Keeping active and watching what you're eating and or drinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it doesn't have to be a marathon. It doesn't have to be a big thing. Um uh, I, I would often have um, a walk that a lot of people would consider, you know, kind of like, for God's sake, hardly worth doing. But it is worth doing. And um, and when I do it, I feel better when I come back, even if it's, you know, uh, not breaking any records. It could be quite short, but it's a bit of fresh air and it's a bit of activity. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm privileged that uh, Mary is the one really who watches the diet. Um, you know, I I I wouldn't be um, I wouldn't be great that way. Maybe um, maybe too many biscuits and things, but um, uh, the the meals would be um, uh, healthy. Yeah, you are, um, you are you are what you are what you eat. Well, there you are. So. That would make me a very sweet person. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, good. Yeah. So as a balanced, healthy diet. I mean, yeah. that's something that Annalise, our yeah. nutrition therapist, always says. Everything in moderation. You can yes. still have the biscuits, but just just go easy on the biscuits. But if you combine that with exercise, and everybody knows exercise releases positive endorphins into the brain. You know all the science is there uh, behind yeah. it as well. So that's very much a way of helping yourself. Then the other one then is when the negative thoughts start to creep in exactly and to be able uh, to 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 challenge them um one of the great um uh methods of having a think about our thinking is to write down it might sound a bit sure i know what it is so why would i do that but apparently and it has been proven many person that i've been talking with have done has done this and it has helped the person greatly to write down about what the problem or situation is. Like, what exactly is bothering me? And when I write it down, um, it becomes clearer in my head. 
And then I can ask myself, okay, can I do something constructive that will help? And if not, can I let it go? Um, I'd be thinking about things like regrets, mm. things in the past, things that uh, were done um, or indeed not done. Um, uh, you know, can I, can I do something that will help with that situation? If I can, well, then let's do it. And if I can't, let well, it then... Go. Let it go. Yeah. Let it go. Let, Move on. Yeah. It's like if you have an argument with somebody or, or you've been blamed in the wrong or uh, somebody's you know, accused you of something or, you know, I, I always sort of think of, you know, if it doesn't sit comfortably with me, if it wasn't my fault, and there was nothing I could do about it. Then in my own mind, hand it back to the person that it's coming from, because it's not your worry. It's actually somebody else's. But, don't you know, don't take it on board yourself. Exactly. If we can, if yeah, we can, yeah. and we have to work a bit at that. Yeah. Um. You know, um, serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm. You know, so important. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the kind of thinking that we can do when we think about our thinking would be to ask ourselves, do we see things in, like, black or white? That a thing is either perfect or it's a failure. The kind of catastrophic thinking. It won't be just bad. It'll be awful. Um, uh, you know, that um, where is the validity in that? And that's where the writing down um, it can help. Um, uh, you know, that... Um, there's a lot of areas in our lives that are um, more grey than black or white. Um, so we we need to kind of see things in a little bit less extreme um, uh, ways. That's um, the catastrophic thinking that you've often yeah, spoken about in, yeah, in the past before. Yeah. And to sort of get away from that. Yeah, to ask ourselves, like, might it be OK? It mightn't be perfect, but will it, could it be OK? Can I cope? along one day at a time. And when you think about it, like, what else can we do? Only cope away one day at a time. Um, sometimes we have to just plug on, um, do the few things we have to do in the day, um, and uh, and trust that um, that maybe tomorrow we'll be uh, a, yeah. things will be a, a wee bit better. It might be, and it might be a better, it might be a, a better day. And then yeah. the... The, the I must and I should have. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I saw a sentence one time that a person was suffering from um, uh, congestion or something of the arteries. I ought to do this and I ought to do that. Um, so, yeah, just we look a little bit more about what do I want to do. Um, uh, and to try and uh, not be telling ourselves too much of, I must, I should have done that. Um, regrets uh, can be futile. We can't change the past. Um, if there's something we can do, um, like maybe pick up the phone or send a text or something, fine. But, I mean, um, when... Uh, when we can't do anything about something, well, there isn't any uh, point in uh, having it ruin our day. Now, that's easier said than done. Um, 
sometimes many a person would have said to me, I wake up in the morning and about 20 seconds later, that same old issue comes into the head. And um, what do I do about it? Well, I mean, try to cope along as best we can. Um, maybe um, the bit of activity, a couple of jobs that have to be done, um, uh, to do whatever uh, we find uh, helps. Um, that could be taking a bit of time out. It could be as simple as going to see a film. It could be something as simple as uh, watching um, uh, some program that we're really interested on the telly, but just to get our minds off of the constant rerunning of the same old tape over and over and over again. A a bit of distraction. And sometimes considering that you may be completely right, or you may be completely wrong. Absolutely. And to allow for that. And um, very often, I would have spoken to many a couple down through the years, And uh, apart from something outstandingly clearly wrong, like abuse or um, uh, an addiction, um, usually um, the situation does not mean that someone is 100% wrong and that the other person is 100% right. And I suppose one of the ideal, uh, one of the helpful things in couples counselling would be that both people would kind of look... um, you know, uh, at at both sides of um, each um, issue that might arise and would at least consider that they would have contributed themselves uh, to um, whatever the issue uh, is. Um, and that helps that, um, that, we, that we don't get into the situation, uh, the thinking situation, where others are the other is completely wrong and that we are completely right. That we'd at least give thought and consideration to the question, um, where am I wrong in this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, could, could, could I be wrong as well? Mike in yeah. Mantry said on negative thoughts, he reckons it's a bit like weeding a garden. Mike said, it's up to me which one of those negative thoughts I keep and which ones I take away. Keep in contact with friendly, like-minded people. And Mike in Bantry says, grow is a wonderful organisation. Absolutely, without a doubt. A a wonderful organisation. Organisations like Grow and Aware, um, etc., are if there's a specific problem like alcohol or gambling, the likes of GA, the likes of AA, there's an awful lot of help out there. Yeah, somebody else is citing Aware, saying uh, what a wonderful organisation Aware is. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, do I believe my feelings and dismiss logic, you suggest? Yeah, I often talk about I over E as against E over I, like intellect over emotion rather than emotion over intellect. If emotion is driving the car, uh, we're quite likely to, to have a crash, whereas if logic is on top, um, uh, we can see things a little bit more clearly. Um, when we're emotionally very involved in an issue, um, uh, sometimes we can see um, the, you know, the wood for the trees, as, mm. as, as, as we'd hear, that um, to kind of try, uh, again, now the writing down would help so much in that, to kind of look at it objectively. 
and uh, to come up with if there are solutions uh, or um, ways forward to consider them um, rather than um, having emotion running the show um, uh, and uh, not uh, not using um, our, our logic. I mean, if emotion is completely running the show, well, then we've lost the head. Yeah, and, um, un- and understand if you make a mistake, it's, it, it, it doesn't mean you're a lesser person because you've made a mistake. Absolutely. I mean, we all will make mistakes. We all have made mistakes. And it doesn't, I mean, if I've made my mistakes, it doesn't mean that I'm a fool. Yeah. It means I made a mistake, yeah. which any sensible person will make anyway in life. And you learn. I think you always learn from no, any you're mistakes. Talking that, um, and then, it, and then, it, then that then leads to forgiveness. But forgiveness of, not just of others, but of forgiveness for yourself. Yeah, yeah. If I got it wrong, look, I'm a human being. I got it wrong. Um... Uh, I've learned from it. Uh, you know, I won't be making the same mistake again, but I need now to, to forgive myself and to be kind to myself and to sometimes ask um, if it was a good friend who was sharing this with me, what would How I would say? How would you react? Yeah. And usually yeah. it would be with kindness. Um, yeah. you know. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And, and don't be always dependent on others for approval. Yeah, like we we would have we talked a lot in in the work um, about um, codependence, um, codependency. Um, you know, am, am I am I am I living my life um, seeking the approval of other people? Um, uh, and we need to get to a point where if I'm getting my own approval, if I'm able to look in the mirror and say you're okay, you're doing your best. Well, then, that that is a lot more important than um, being, you know, people-pleasing, never saying uh, no, um, because that can eventually get us down because we're putting ourselves about number seven on a list of ten, whereas we need to put ourselves uh, first. And a person might say, but isn't that awful selfish? And no, I would say, not. no, that's self-care. Yeah, absolutely. And then fin- finally, life isn't always fair and life isn't always perfect. Indeed it is not. No. And can I accept where I have either been wronged or wronged someone else? And can I accept that and and move on? And the forgiveness would come in there. Like, But life is sometimes very unfair. Um, um, uh, you know, you'd hear of some families uh, where um, one uh, bad happening was followed by another and you'd say, Mother of God, like, could that family ever get a break? I know. And I know. Um, so life can be unfair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's unfortunate. That's the reality. Yeah. OK. Yeah. As always, a pleasure to talk to you, Joe. Uh, we'll chat again next Tuesday. Have a good week. Thanks, Patricia, and, and the same to you thanks. and JP and Aldale. Thanks for joining us. And sir. our listeners. Bye-bye. Thanks for yeah. joining us. Joe Heffernan runs a counselling practice in Boherbury. His number is 086-834-8145. 086-834-8145. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. We'll talk to you tomorrow morning at 10. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 